there was no single event that that uh, killed Pan Am. Wasn't a single event that Pan Am could not have recovered from, but it was it was a succession of these events and the way Pan Am's management responded to them that eventually took it all the way down and some bad luck and some bad politics. But if, if there were a, an analogy, a short answer, I would say that Pan Am was like a prehistoric pterodactyl, a great winged dinosaur that, that ruled the sky and ruled the earth. And then the sky and the earth and the climate changed and the pterodactyl didn't change, didn't adapt. Robert Gant is an award-winning author and a highly accomplished pilot. His books have won multiple awards for excellence in history. His pilot skills have elevated him to the upper echelons in every organization with which he has flown. He has experience as a naval aviator, supervisory airline pilot, and general aviation aerobatic team leader. He's written more than a dozen books. Bob was hired by Pan Am in 1965 and stayed until his fleet got acquired by Delta Airlines near the end of Pan Am. I'm highly honored that he would have a conversation with me about his book, Sky Gods, The Fall of Pan Am. This interview is certainly a highlight of my podcasting endeavors. I can't express enough gratitude to Bob for this opportunity. I hope you enjoy the following conversation. Bob Gant, author of Sky Gods, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You were a Pan Am pilot. Tell me about why you chose the name Sky Gods for the book. Well, the first time I heard the word Sky Gods was I was a new hire co-pilot at Pan Am. And it wasn't me, but it was one of our one of my contemporaries who came up with that description. That was perfect to describe these autocratic tyrants that we uh, we discovered there in the, in the left seat of the 707s we're flying. And the word just began to stick. And actually, I think some of the old sky gods actually took it as a compliment because that's the way they saw themselves. God appointed them for that job. That's interesting because as I was reading the book, you call Trip, you know, the ultimate sky god. When you're referring to, to Juan Trip as a sky god in the book, were you using that same sense of, uh, of irony in it? Or was it a little bit more of a, uh, was there a different character to, to the usage of the word? Well, first of all, sky gods began to have a more expansive uh, meaning as I got into the book. It described, first of all, the old autocratic captains, but then it began to describe the airline, the persona of the airline itself. And then naturally that stemmed from its founder, from Juan Tripp. Now, remember, okay. he, was a, he, he was a New England plutocrat and Ivy League educated and uh, spent most of his time with uh, very wealthy, influential friends. So uh, he had a sky godly air about him. And I think he, he planted that on the, on the airline that he founded. Okay. It came from, originally from him. <clears throat> so one of the things you do in the book is you, you track a, uh, a band of new hires that gets hired in the mid sixties uh, and, 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 interspersed throughout the book is you're recounting their experiences through the, you know, through their arc of their career in Pan Am. And, uh, and I thought it was pretty cool the way that you were talking about their new hire class and how so many of the, uh, the, 
the captains or the instructor pilots were talking about back in the boat days. So you get hired in at in at Pan Am, and I'm assuming that that experience that you were writing about was formed by your experience uh, of getting hired at Pan Am. And no, that's true. Talk a little bit about the back in the boat days, the the affinity that elder generation on property had for the the real days of flying at Pan Am. Well, that sort of goes along with that sky godly persona that I gave to the airline itself. Back in the when we were going through classes and and and, and getting checked out as young co-pilots, that was a term that was used a lot. Well, back in the boat days, we did it this way and that way. And what they were really referring to is the way these sky gods still ran airplanes. And yeah. they ran 707s just like they did back in the boat days running the China Clipper. And that was the culture that we that we uh, encountered when we first went to work. One of the cultural challenges you found early on was there was a, a safety culture issue with the Boeing 707s. Uh, Pan Am was crashing Boeing 707s at a at a, at a bigger rate than most other airlines that were flying 707s. You sort of pin that squarely on the sky god ethic. Uh, how easy was it to call that out at the time? Or what was the experience of being a junior pilot back then and seeing this problem? And, and, and did you feel like you knew what the problem was back then? Or is it easier with 2020 hindsight? That's some of it's 2020 hindsight, but I, I knew of a couple co-pilots and I wasn't one of them who went to the chief pilot to complain about some, some captain he had flown with who, whom he thought was dangerous. And he was basically rebuffed. He said, you know, you want to keep your job, get out of here. Yeah. And, uh, and that was mostly the, uh, what we did. We kept our mouths shut. And, uh, first of all, for the first year we were there, we could be, you were on probation. So you could be fired, but uh, you'd be fired for other reasons too, even later. Sure. So nobody said very much at the time. Yeah, that that's uh, that evokes the memory of that one story that you recount, where the uh, I, I believe it was Captain Lou Cogliani uh, as a character of the book, and who was gruff and complaining about his new hire sitting next to him, and then he was had forgot to drop the gear by about you know five or 600 feet on final. And, uh, and then he made, and then, you know, he asked the captain if he wanted the gear and, and then he made the mistake of laughing at the captain. (laughs) Yeah. The picture you seem to be painting in the book is that, you know, that tyrants were celebrated. Yeah. That's fairly accurate. And each tyrant was, was, was a tyrant in his own distinctive way. It seemed like each one of them had these idiosyncrasies and, uh, gradually we as you flew with enough of them you found out what their idiosyncrasies were and you tried to adapt to it but uh, each one of them had his and, and they weren't all hostile a lot of them were but they they, they were mostly autocratic and uh, they, they didn't tolerate a lot of a lot of uh, disagreement for sure and yeah. they didn't even like many suggestions about uh, when to put the gear down or stuff like that yeah but, uh, <laughs> You got hired at Pan Am in what year? 65, September 65. And you were an accomplished uh, Navy pilot. 
you had over 300 carrier landings in the uh, in the A4. Right. Was that the only fighter attack aircraft that you were qualified in in the Navy? No, there were several. There were a few others, but uh, I'd spent my last year and a half in the Navy as a weapons test pilot. So uh, I wasn't. I, I was flying the A4, but beyond that, I was flying some multi-engine airplanes, which I had no experience in before, like the P2 and the S2 uh, tracker, a few things like that. Even even got exposed to helicopters. What was a typical mission as a weapons test pilot, if there was one? Well, the particular project I was assigned to was the Mark 46 torpedo, which was still being developed. And one version of it would have a nuclear warhead. Okay. And the idea was that, that uh, if you couldn't exactly pinpoint the location of an enemy submarine, in those days, a Soviet submarine, then uh, the next thing was to launch a torpedo that would blow the hell out of everything in the, in the area, yeah. which would be a nuke. And they wanted this. They wanted to be able to deliver this from any platform, from a helicopter up to uh, a 500 knot fighter. Wow! And uh, so th that was my job. I, I I dropped these torpedoes from from the A4 all the way down to a helicopter. I'm guessing you to have your pick of what airline you went to, and you chose Pan Am. Why did you choose Pan Am? Well, I didn't know much about airlines in those days, but I was attracted to the glamour of international airlines. And uh, uh, I didn't do much homework about which airline was had the best balance sheet or anything like that. But uh, I knew I'd rather have have uh, sushi in Tokyo on a layover. I knew I'd rather have uh, have tea in London and, 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 and uh, have a wonderful Paris layover, romantic evening there. I'd rather do that than layover in Louisville or, or Detroit or, or some mid-America place. So I didn't even think about joining Delta. And I gave American just a little pass, and I didn't like what I saw there. Yeah. And I certainly didn't want, to, want, didn't want to go to United, only because uh, they were hiring everybody. Uh, they weren't very particular. In fact, they hired some of the enlisted men from my, from my <laughs> squadron who happened to be pilots. I thought, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty low class. But uh, the only airlines that qualified, in my opinion, were Pan Am and TWA. And for a long time, I made the decision to get out of the Navy and do this, and, and Pan Am wouldn't even answer my letters. My, in those days, this was, oh, really? uh, yeah, we didn't have computers or, or text messaging, or email. And uh, TWA invited me to come for an interview. In fact, I think they put me up. As, it was, it was uh, very civilized very, and uh, very friendly. And uh, a week or so later, I got a formal invitation to, to, with, with a class date, the notification I, was, I would be hired. And with that in my hand, I resigned from the Navy. And I was still in the process of about a month to go when Pan Am suddenly responded, come to New York and we will consider interviewing you. And very <laughs> snooty. Yeah. And uh, none, uh, none of the, the democratic process that TWA had. So I go to New York and, and stand or sit in front of this board, about three of these old sky gods with their half-framed glasses over their noses. And they're peering at me and asking me all these hard questions. And you know what makes you think you have the qualifications to fly for the world's most experienced airline? That kind of thing. And I, <laughs> I blundered my way through that. And then uh, about a week or so later, I get a telegram. Congratulations, 
report. To, uh, you've been hired. Report to uh, Chief Pilot Kinkle in San Francisco on such such a date. And so then I had to inform TWA. You know, thank you, but I'm changing my mind, and uh, headed for San Francisco. So that was that was how that happened. Pan American. That's great. So, what what year and month was that approximately? Well, it was during the summer of '65. My class began on September 7th, 1965. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so those couple of years were prolific hiring years. Yeah. Um, I know that because my dad went and interviewed at TWA in 66 with 110 hours of total time. And he ended up uh, you know, his date of hire was in June of 67. It's interesting. I was just reading the other day where someone who got hired in early 65 at TWA and they upgraded in about four or five years and they, they had their career run of being captain in the 7-0s, the 7-2s, uh, 747s, the L-1011s, whereas someone who I know who got hired at TWA in June of 1967 had his first opportunity to upgrade to captain in 1990, 23 years later. You paint something similar happening, even though you don't really talk about it from that seniority angle. What happened with the business projections from the hiring craze of 65 to the late sixties and into the seventies, uh, how quickly did the, uh, did the industry, you know, kind of change on its head? Well, hi uh, history reversed itself towards the late sixties. Uh, I'm not sure what, how the domestic airlines were expanding, but all the airlines were expanding like mad during the mid sixties. And in Pan Am's case, the average traffic growth was some between 15 and 30% a year and wow. uh, pro projecting ahead uh, uh, Pan Am could barely hire enough pilots and produce airplanes enough to, to keep matching that. That was in fact, the original stimulus for the 747 development. But uh, at that time, it looked like uh, there was no limit to airline growth. Well, that all came to a screeching halt in the, uh, by the early 70s, there was a, a worldwide recession. There, there was an Arab uh, oil embargo followed by a huge jump in fuel prices. And uh, air traffic just reversed and people stopped traveling. They couldn't afford it. So all that hiring suddenly went the other way and ended up furloughing some of those people they hired. Now, in Pan Am's case, there was even more projection because it's, it's arguable whether it's a secret or not, but, but junior co-pilots at Pan Am were being trained as navigators. And, and uh, navigators were already on the way out. Only, only about three years after I was hired, they did away with navigators, which meant more furloughs because they didn't need these guys. Yeah. Talk about the, the navigators. Uh, you mentioned in the book that um, some of the characters uh, who got hired in that class were unaware of the possibility that they could even be relegated to navigator. Did, uh, did you... You didn't have to do time as a navigator, did you? No, and and 
it, it, even back when, the, when we were being interviewed by these old sky gods, somebody would at one time ask the question, maybe it was after we reported to class, but they asked the question, do you want to be a pilot or a flight engineer? And we looked at a flight engineer. Damn, those are, those are enlisted guys in, in the military, tattoos on their arms and all that. They're mechanics. And they got, they don't want to be a flight engineer. Well, it wasn't until we arrived, we found out that flight engineers made about $500 a month more than, than the new hire co-pilots because they belong to a different union. Yeah. They're, they're also pilots too. So that was one thing we were unaware of. And then they, uh, in our class in particular, they asked us if we wanted to be navigators. Because up until then, uh, every new hire pilot class had to go to navigation school and get a, oh. get a license as a navigator. Well, by the time we came along, they saw that we were going to be first officers within about a year. And so uh, they made it voluntary whether or not we wanted to go to navi uh, navigator school. And none of us wanted to do that. Not to my knowledge, not a single soul. It's the same thing. Navigators to us were pilot washouts in the military and you know, beneath our dignity. And yeah. later on, I regretted that because that was an, an old historic way of, of steering vessels across an ocean. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was on its way out. And I regretted it so much that I later went back and bought a sextant and taught myself how to use it and, really? and navigate. So a 737 that I was just flying, it was one of the... Uh earliest 900 series but it's it's one of the only ones that still has those upper windows or those that you can see through and at the risk of asking an ignorant question um those you familiar with the the boeing cockpit how it used to have those those higher uh windows that you could see through looking up yeah it, were those designed for that type of navigation no those are nice to now, mind you, I wasn't a navigator, but but the uh, every 707 cockpit had a had an octant. We didn't they call them sextants; they were octants that uh, a little little hole, airtight hole. You could plug this octant up there through it and make this this uh, whistling sound while he was up there. And he took his star shots through that that hole in the in the roof of the of the cockpit. One of the periods that you 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 talk about. Um in the book, which obviously was right before you got hired at Pan Am, you, you talk about the doldrums of 1955 to 1964. It's interesting because my father being a TWA pilot, I grew up with a real reverential sense of the profession. But there's this funny story in my family where my, my grandfather had to walk uh, a cousin of his down the aisle because, and, and I, I think it was in this time period of like, you know, the late fifties or early sixties, because this, you know, this cousin's father wouldn't walk her down the aisle because she was marrying an airline pilot and he did not approve yeah. <laughs> of that yeah. as a lifestyle choice. Do you, do you think that the, the sort of the golden age of the, of the sixties and the jet age of, uh, places like Pan Am. Do you think that that kind of elevated the profession in people's eyes? Oh, I, I think so. I'm, I'm not sure why the guy wouldn't, why he wouldn't want his daughter to marry an airline pilot, but probably had something to do with money too, because airline pilots weren't, weren't really highly paid 
during those years, I don't think, compared to other professionals. Yeah. But by the time the uh by the time the mid 60s came around and and places like Pan Am and TWA had their 707s, it became a pretty lucrative career. Uh there was uh, uh someone was saying that there was a um the the Cadillac standard that every every month a, a Pan Am captain could buy himself a Cadillac with his pay. <laughs> and and one of the reasons why I'm I find this to be so palpable to have just read this is we're in a position right now in the in the industry where airline pilot contracts are you know they they got a lot better over the last 10 years a lot of the damage from the uh from the lost decade from 2000 you know two to 2012 has been undone and reversed and now this year uh from from what we're hearing at other airlines uh the the contracts are getting even more generous there's a desperation in the industry to attract and retain pilots because there's a unprecedented pilot shortage you know sort of a once in a lifetime or once in a generation thing going on right now yet there's also all of this ominous data coming in about the economy what parallels do you see from back then to now well not many parallels actually but but the I think historically the airline business has always been cyclical. Some of the cycles are really long. The cycle that began in the early '60s with the with the arrival of jet transports uh, that was a a boom period and a great hiring time for the for, for for the airlines. And that cycle ended rather abruptly in the '70s and went down, 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 and then uh, and then resumed. Probably for most of the for most of the industry in the late '80s, and continued until nine eleven, and then there was another dark period. Yeah, briefly, and uh, now of course we're in this in this great ascension of boom time. Will that last forever? Well, I don't want to be cynical, but I but I doubt if it will. Yeah, yeah. History won't be nullified. It, it, there will be a, another cycle. A friend of mine just said to me the other day, he said he, he feels like it's June of 2001 right now, which I hope he's wrong. I hope it's more like, uh, yeah, you know. yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and there are, then there will be events, yeah. some of them cataclysmic that we can't foresee that will change all this. So you're hired at Pan Am in 65. How long were you an FO for? Well, I wasn't an FO when I was hired. I was a, I was a, when I was a relief pilot. I was a co-pilot, but I was always a third officer until that, that lasted about a year. Then I, I uh, went through training as a first officer. And uh, in fact, Pan Am had all these formal titles. It, it, we weren't first officers or co-pilots. I, I was a master co-pilot, MCO. And <laughs> you know, this, this carries over from the boat days. The uh, captains were, were uh, MPTs. So it was a master pilot. But, uh, and then I was a first officer for the next 16 years before I, I checked out as a captain. And it took that long to uh, wow. ascend to the, uh, the seniority letter. And that was because, mainly because the airline was shrinking. 
Yeah. And, and for a long time, nobody was retiring. How long do you remember when the first pay cut came? Mm, it would have been in the seventies sometime. Okay. And one of our contracts, we probably gave, gave back and, and, uh, and then there were, it, it wasn't until the late seventies that that began to change Pan Am actually for a couple of years actually made money, made a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, that lasted until our CEO general Sewell bought national airlines. And from then on, it was just a, 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 a calamitous, uh, outflow of you know, hemorrhage of money. And, and then later on parts of the airline, but from then on, almost every contract was some kind of a give back. Even when we didn't take a pay cut, we 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 uh, had to increase hours flown or, or some give back to the company. Yeah. In one of the uh, one of the big give backs that uh, that that really I think highlights the uh, the the glamorization of the of the pilot job is you know you talk about how you had this great deal with the uh, with the baggage handlers. Yeah, where, uh, you know, uh, you wouldn't load bags and they wouldn't fly airplanes. Fly airplanes, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they never flew airplanes, but you you ended up having to load your own bags. Right. Did you feel like there was a sense of where a lot of pilots ended up uh, in the late seventies and eighties, denigrating the career or or devaluing it because? because of what had happened to them. Like they found it hard to, to keep their sense of personal pride. Cause like, I remember in the middle of the, the lost decade after nine 11, so many people were, you know, people don't respect pilots anymore. We got no self-respect, yada, yada, yada. When things were still low, low like that, there was a, a you know, Sully's miracle on the Hudson. And, and that to me was an event where this guy who is, U.S. Air captains, they were making the league minimum. U.S. Air captains on the A320 were making less than second-year Delta first officers were making in the year 2000, regardless of what anybody might say about Sully's politics today or anything. He, there, there was this bright, shining moment where at least, you know, we might not have had our pay or work rules, but at least we had our dignity and professionalism and doing a doing a job well done. Did, did you feel like, was there any fracturing inside the pilot group like that were people denigrating of the profession back then when you when you guys were going through all that well truthfully no not not of the profession we got we got a little cynical about pan am and its management at that time but uh, no i think nobody now mind you most of those years i was stationed overseas i was in berlin for 12 years and I was in Hong yeah. Kong for a few years and we had a little different perspective anyway, but, um, uh, the, the profession itself, I, I think we still held our respect. And I remember particularly in, 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 in Berlin, the Germans had huge respect for, they, they respected uniforms mainly, but, but, uh, airline pilots were really up on, on an upper tier in their estimation. That's cool. So, you talk a bit about the Berlin base in the, uh, in the book, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about the eccentric culture, but how that contrasted with the, uh, with the safety record of the, of the Berlin base. Well, first of all, air, I think airline pilots 
and that's not but not just Pan Am. Most the the profession in general, airline pilots are basically pretty conservative, culturally, and and, and probably majority politically too. But uh, they they dress conservatively and they and they they, they do everything in moderation. But there's about ten percent who are a little more eccentric than that. And for for Pan Am, the place to go for those eccentrics was Berlin. It was uh, we, they, we call it the Black Sheep Squadron over there. And uh, the old saying is, if you're not weird when you went to Berlin, you had to pretend to be. <laughs> and but the, the but the weirdness didn't affect their professionalism. These guys were some of the best pilots in the system. And I think the Pan Am headquarters kind of allowed some of this eccentricity because. Pan Am consistently had the best on-time record and the best safety record. And so okay. the attitude was just, just let them be what they are as long as they fly airplanes okay. And so uh, all the weirdos gathered over there and just had a ball. That's great. The fun stories in the book were definitely the, uh, you know, the dual lives lived by, yeah. by some of the Pan Am or some of the Berlin-based pilots. And uh, you had the... The one guy who was a, uh, he was a pastor, a, a teetotaling. Yeah. yeah. He was a, a, a teetotaling deacon with a, with a wife and kids, but he'd come over to Berlin and he changed complexions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that That's uh, another thing I really learned by reading your book was how much Pan Am was involved uh, one trip specifically in developing uh, both the 707 and the 747. Uh, it's, and, you know, the first time I read your book, it was uh, when the uh, the 737 Max was in the news. And, you know, interesting to the story of the Max is how much the creation of the 737 Max was a response to airlines' preferences and desires that, mm-hmm. They have something that doesn't incur them extra training cost and, and looks and feels and operates exactly like the 737. Well, you know, I, I didn't realize uh, your book was very informative to me on, on, on how much, you know, I, I thought Boeing just made the 707 because it, you know, figured that that's what airlines would want. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about the game of, pressure that Juan Tripp played where he played uh, Douglas and Boeing against each other. Yeah. And that was, that was classic Juan Tripp. And it's probably what made Tripp unique in the airline history airline, because he had done that with, you know, since the beginning, he had pitted Sikorsky against Boeing and Sikorsky against Glenn Martin and, and got what he wanted that way. Well, he sniffed the jet age coming before almost everybody else all the other airlines, American, United, they were all, they saw it coming, but in the meantime, they were going to outfit their fleets with uh, turboprops, mainly Electras and that kind of airplane. But Boeing had already developed, uh, what was it, the Dash 80, which was the the forerunner of the 707. And it was mainly for the military. It was going to be a tanker and a transport and uh, eventually would be the 707. But it was a, a small-scale 707, domestic. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't what Tripp wanted at all. And uh, he and Bill Allen of Boeing had always had this, this uh, both, both of them were bullies. And, and uh, in this case, uh, Bill Allen just said, no, you, you take it the way it is or, or leave it. 
Meanwhile, Douglas was building a similar airplane, but uh, Tripp pitted Douglas against Boeing, and uh, in the background also pitted uh, uh, Pratt Whitney against Rolls Royce because in order in order to make an intercontinental jet, they had to have a bigger engine, which wasn't available, which is yeah. why Bill Allen wasn't going to build it, and Tripp kind of. Uh, at the verge of making a deal with Rolls-Royce to, to uh, build a big engine, forced uh, Fred Rensselaer of Pratt & Whitney to, to comply. He said, okay, I will deliver to you the J-75, which would be enough thrust, big, a big enough engine then to make an intercontinental jet of the 707. So with this in his pocket, Tripp quietly makes a deal to buy Douglas airplanes. He lets that word leak out, and the next thing he gets is a phone call from Bill Allen, who had caved in and said, okay. I'll give you the 707 you want. It'll be longer. It'll have more fuel and it'll have your J 75 engine on it. But that yeah. was classic trip. And, uh, and he got what he wanted. And, and what th that gave him was about a three, four, five year lead on all the other airlines. And uh, just a couple of years later, Pan Am was flying across the Atlantic in the 707. So he made yeah. that happen. That was, that was classic one trip. I, yeah, I love that that point where, you know, he makes the deal with uh, with Bill Allen for for the uh, for the smaller 707s, and it's going to be mm -hmm. announced. And Bill Allen thinks it's going to be Boeing's you know glory moment. And then on this very yeah. same day, he announced that he's ordered more of the DC eights. Yeah, you know, which which then pressures Bill Allen to go. All right, we'll give you your damn airplane. You know. Yep. You didn't talk about it at all, but. Boeing sort of seems to be the uh, the star manufacturer of the book. Can you speak to Absolutely. the mystique of Boeing? Well, not so much a mystique, but but Pan Am and and Boeing sort of had a, a partnership. Now, and 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 the same as one trip and Bill Allen had a had their own unique. They, they had this old game between them. It, it, uh, would you buy it if I build it? He said, "Well, would you build it if I buy it?" They yeah. they push each other that way and that was sort of the way the 707 came, came about and definitely the way the 747 was constructed i think it may have been the last time in history in which an airline and a manufacturer jointly did something really historic in the evolution of air transport and that the, the 747 was probably the last time that would happen and yeah. uh, the 747 was born in one trip's mind he knew what he wanted and at the time, as, as usual, people were telling me, you know, it can't be done. You know, we, I can't do it, you know. And uh, he just, by by sheer bulldozer willpower, made it happen. And uh, he uh, came to an agreement with Bill Allen to build one trip's airplane. It was, it was probably the last time a, a huge airplane, a huge industry-changing airplane, would be, de yeah. would be uh, built to the specifications of one airline. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned in the uh, in the book how the uh, you know the Boeing engineers would roll their eyes because Trip would come and look at things and say, "No, it needs to be bigger. It needs to be yeah." You know, yeah. one of the reasons why Pan Am died is you know you like you just mentioned that the they they massively overpaid for national airlines. Um, yeah. The the entire existence of pan am before it bought national it didn't have any domestic feed 
That's right. Talk about the role of government regulation and the route structure where airlines were allowed to fly and, and how that kind of helped Pan Am in the early days and, and, uh, and how it ended up, uh, you know, really being uh, an obstacle for it by the time it got to the 70s. Well, politics were always involved in that. And, 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 and Tripp, for all his power wielding, uh, usually lost the politics game. He, he, he really alienated the uh, Roosevelt administration, particularly Joseph Kennedy. That sort of kept him out of the domestic business right there. They pretty much survived on mail contracts. And then one trip's expectation was that at the end of World War II, after all that Pan Am had done, airlift capability for the, for the military, that Pan Am would be rewarded with all these new routes, particularly domestic routes. Wrong. The, the same bias continued against through the Truman administration, right on, right up, particularly up to the Kennedy administration. They, they, they just didn't give Pan Am anything. The last thing they ever gave Pan Am was was the approval to buy American Overseas Airlines, AOA. And uh, that's what got us into Berlin for some years. But other than that, no root awards. In the meantime, every, every president and his successor rewarded usually his home airline with new root awards, international root awards, in parallel with Pan Am's. So little by little, Pan Am's uh, dominance of the over overseas routes was being was being re reduced, while at the same time, these domestic airlines could feed their international routes with their domestic lines. And this continued right on through the, particularly through the Kennedy administration. Uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, rewarded, uh, what was it? I guess American Airlines based in Texas with the routes all over the place. That, that uh, And then along comes Richard Nixon, reversed some of that and, and rewarded his favorite airline, which I think was United. Pan Am never had that kind of clout because it was a New York-based airline. And uh, with all the hundreds and thousands of corporations based in New York, uh, there was no political clout that was particularly uh, faithful or helpful to Pan Am. And so by the late 70s, the CAB was tasked with deregulation. They're going to put themselves out of, out of business. And if by the end of the 70s, no, no longer would uh, domestic routes be awarded or, or, or taken. Anybody could fly anywhere in the country, literally, if they, had a, if they had airplanes and equipment to do it, which Pan Am at the time didn't. But this was, should have been their big break. Now, finally, they can feed all their domestic, all their international routes with domestic routes. And then he made the biggest mistake of all by just acquiring national airlines at about five times what it was worth. But anyway, that's the story of how Pan Am, it, it wasn't the thing that killed Pan Am, it was one of the things that killed Pan Am. It was this denial of domestic authority. What do you think all of the factors were that killed Pan Am? Ah, people ask me that a lot. Why did Pan Am fail? Why did Pan Am die? And I said, well, there's no short answer. There's a 312-page book on that subject called Sky Gods. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great book. But uh, th there was no single event that, that uh, killed Pan Am. What a single event that Pan Am could not have recovered from. But it was 
it was a succession of these events and the way Pan Am's management responded to them that eventually took it all the way down and some bad luck and some bad politics. But if, if there were a, an analogy, a short answer, I would say that Pan Am was like a prehistoric pterodactyl, a great winged dinosaur that, that ruled the sky and ruled the earth. And then the sky and the earth and the climate changed and the pterodactyl didn't change, didn't adapt. Yeah. It became extinct. And that's basically what Panem did. It didn't adapt to all these changes that befell it. So <clears throat> there were two sets of pilots that got lucky in the in the collapse of Pan Am. There were those that went to United with the sale of the Pacific routes mm -hmm. and, and all the 747s. And then there were those that, that went to Delta with the sale of the, uh, it was the Airbus fleet. The, the North Atlantic, yeah. Okay. And so talk about the pilot culture and how it responded and what the thoughts were about those who either stayed or left for United. That, that was mostly just straight off the top of the seniority list, right? By, by choice, by seniority. Well, it was, it was equipment based. Okay. They, they wanted the 747s. Yeah. They wanted sub four seven enough to, 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 to service the newly acquired Pacific routes. And so those were mostly the most senior pilots in the system anyway, but, but that accounted for, uh, all the entire, all the crew members, uh, flight engineers in the 747. And uh, that was probably the last sweet deal of any airline merger because and with almost all the pilots who were eligible, there's 400 and some did that. Some regretfully because they all had a, a, a warm feeling for Pan Am, but uh, money was involved and also seniority was involved. They all went over to United with their Pan Am date of hire which inserted them, every one of them, right into captain seniority at, at United. And uh, plus a big pay raise. It, it was pretty hard to turn that down. Yeah. So that was the last sweet deal. When Delta came along, it wasn't, wasn't so sweet. Uh, they, they took about, I want to say about 700 pilots, about a third of the airline. And uh, these were mostly Airbus pilots like me. And uh, that was out of seniority. The real senior 747 captains didn't get to go. And uh, there was a big hue and cry about that, but it, they, they lost that case. And uh, we were inserted into Delta's seniority list by some ratio, I forget, 14 to one or something. So the further down the list you were, the further at uh, Pan Am, the way much further down the list you were at, at, at Delta. In my case, I lost about five years seniority. But, okay. uh, and 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 we all started at uh, our Pan Am pay scale at Delta. So for oh, really? the first year or two, yeah, first year or two, I'm flying a seven six seven, and my first officer always made more money than I did. So <laughs> but you know, as compared to those who didn't go to Delta, it was still a pretty soft landing, right? Uh, yeah, that was a soft landing for for at least we had a job. And yeah. the, 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 the senior sky gods were out on the street, the, the, the old the 747 captains. And uh, 
I, I, I would have been a 74 captain. I just didn't. I just preferred the Airbus at the time. But that was a sure matter of luck. And these guys all, those who were still looking for a job, wound up flying for cargo airlines and overseas airlines. A lot of them went to uh, Korean airlines. What year was um, was Lockerbie again? Uh, 88, 1988. Did you know any of the crew on that plane personally? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew the captain very well, Jim McQuarrie. He's yeah. a good friend. Um, did that, uh, how did that news hit you when it came in? Well, badly, of course. I mean, uh, I remember I was on a layover in Paris, and there were several crews there when we were in a, I think, a bar or the restaurant, when the news came that a Pan Am 747 had crashed over uh, Scotland, and uh, no nothing was said about a bomb. And, and I remember one of the captains I was with, who was a 747 captain, said, you know, it better be a bomb. Because the speculation was that these old 747s, we had the oldest ones in the, in the business, the very first ones, that this thing might have just come apart like an overripe watermelon at the yeah. seams, which we knew was unlikely because those airplanes had all just been through the craft Silver, Silver Reserve Air Fleet overhaul. Yeah. But then for the next week, the Scottish investigators were not saying anything, even though they knew it. We're not saying anything about a bomb or a terrorist event. The airplane had just crashed. And uh, whatever the reason was, they, I thought they were, they were probably still trying to track down, maybe catch the terrorists without alerting them. But it wasn't until about a week later that they announced, okay, a bomb had detonated inside the, inside the 747. But in the meantime, you couldn't find a passenger who would get on a Pan Am airplane oh, wow. for, for, the, for a long time. And every night on the news, there's this picture of this, of this the nose section of the 747 crumpled in a Scottish meadow. And uh, I mean, Pan Am is already, already in big financial trouble. And this was, if anything, was the last nail in the coffin. Then fast forward to the Delta deal. Delta... Mm -hmm agreed to become a 50% investor in Pan Am. And it was just going to be a small fleet of, of yeah. a Latin American based Latin American operation operation based in Miami. And Delta had agreed, I, I, I don't know if it's 50% or what, but, but to subsidize it. And after about a month of operation, pull the plug on it for whatever reason they determined this was a dead end. And of course, a lot of people argue they they, they knew this all along. They just did, did dangle this in order to get the deal for the Atlantic routes. But at any rate, that was December fourth, nineteen ninety one. Where do you think the truth lay in that? You think maybe there was? I mean, because what I've come to learn is, you know, companies never really realize the company that they're buying until they actually get the keys and get to look underneath the hood and inside the doors and whatnot. And, uh, and so, you know, could there have been a good faith, just earnest mistake that they made where they suddenly realized well, there's, there's too much necrotic tissue that we didn't, you know? Well, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't speculate publicly that, 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 that there was some subterfuge there or that, they, they knew all along that they were going to pull the plug. Uh, I suspect it's closer to what you said, 
they were prepared to do that if the airline did, didn't show promise. And yeah. I think after a month, they, they realized, okay, this is a dead end. Yeah. And they just exercised that option. So in, in one of the most uh, vivid scenes in the book, there's people in the simulator, in the Airbus simulator in JFK. And, uh, and the call comes in, we're shutting down the operations. Uh, t- talk about that moment. Well, it, it was in Miami. These are the Pan Am people we're talking about. Today. Yeah, the the Pan Am people. What, and they, what and they they were in uh, in training a lot of them to be sub four seven crew members. That that's I think all that airline was going to have flying out of Miami. So they're in the simulator when the word comes shut down. You're out of here. And by that time, everybody in the in, in, in the offices, the, the, the reception rooms, they'd all gotten a word. They're leaving, and the doors are locked. And some of these guys had. To, had to literally go out through the ground floor window of, the, of, of this shut down building. And there they are, all of a sudden, with no notice, out of a job. And uh, the same was true for several crews who were on layovers somewhere down in Latin America, in South America. And uh, they had to bargain and, and find ways to get fuel just to get them and their passengers back home. It's a black day. By that time, you were already in training, I'm assuming, at Delta or maybe even on the line already? Yeah, I was on the line already because they, they they took over our Airbus fleets. Okay. And uh, which is the North Atlantic uh, ETOPS operation. Delta was having trouble introducing their own aircraft and getting approvals and buying Pan Ams was the easiest way for them to, to lock in the North Atlantic. So all I did is just change uniforms, and I was okay. still same routes across the across the North Atlantic from New York to, to Europe and back. And then, how quickly did you transition to the seven six seven after that? Oh, only a couple months. I I remember I had uh, I was kind of curious about the seven six seven, much as I like the Airbus, but I was also curious about flying domestic routes. I'd never done that. I said, "Oh, okay. this would be cool." And so I transferred to Atlanta on the seven six seven. Got checked out. And remember on the very first trip or so, we, we made about four or five stops across the country and uh, they never fed us. I mean, at Pan Am, we're always used to the flight attendant. <laughs> what would you like for lunch? And they, and, and they don't, oh, they don't, you know, pilots are on their own across here. And we got to somewhere we're gonna lay over and we're gonna lay over about 12 hours and off we go again, same thing. And I put up with this for about a month. I got off the, the 767 as quick as I could, went back to the Airbus <laughs> at International. <laughs> um, yeah, so were there any other challenges of blending in with the Delta culture as a as a former Pan Am guy? Did and did uh did I'm assuming that just knowing personalities in general, some some had an easier time than others, let's say. Oh yeah. And w- without denigrating the, the Delta culture too much. I'd say it's a, it was a totally different culture. And particularly during that time on the 767, I'd fly with Atlanta-based co-pilots. And I kind of missed the eccentricity of, of some of the Pan Am people. And particularly on an international trip, you'd, at least one of the two pilots and their crew members would be uh, pretty interesting to have something to say. And it seemed like every one of these guys, it, 
this is in, in retrospect, it kind of sticks in my imagination, but every one of them came from a cookie cutter. They, they, you, they, they all lived in Peachtree City, around a Delta colony. They all had the same haircut. They all had 2.2 kids. They all came out of Air Force 141s or something like that. And all they talk about for four days is the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> I said, oh God, get get me out of here! <laughs> but that, that that's an exaggeration. But that yeah, sure. There, there was a big cultural shock sometimes. How many years did you uh, did you have at Delta before you retired? About eight. Eight years. Yeah, okay. I had to retire at sixty in those days. Yeah, I, I'm that changed in two thousand and uh, two thousand seven. Yeah. I believe I remember because I was a. Uh, I was a new hire at Virgin America and I was jump seating up uh, yeah. up on a Southwest flight. And uh, there was a gentleman named Mel Eakin, who was the captain of uh, that Southwest uh, flight. And, and the news just came in that they were changing it to uh, age 60 or age 65, but he was turning 60 about two months yeah. before the cutoff. And he's like, Ah, Virgin America. Hey, uh, you're just the guy I need to talk to. And, and he ended up, uh, coming over to uh, Virgin America and enjoying five more years. Uh, you wow. know, yeah. So that was, that was pretty cool. But he had to, he had to start on the bottom at Virgin America. Yeah, he did. That is the, uh, wow. you know, the, the insanity of this industry to me is that we don't have it structured differently. You know, I, uh, uh many other, uh, well remunerated operators of machinery you know let's say like uh harbor pilots or whatnot they they don't negotiate with a company they negotiate with an entire industry and you know and seniority yeah. is seniority and and I, I i i i think the the setup of us all you know having our unions where we negotiate contracts with one company yeah. it's it's as your book points out it's it's live or die with the company, you know, maybe yeah. you. Yeah, precisely. I, I never thought that I was going to go to age 60. It, it, it didn't, if they'd extended it to 65, I, that, I might have had to think about that anyway. But, but that last year I was flying, I couldn't wait for, for, the, for the birthday to roll around because uh, I'd stupidly, or not stupidly, but for whatever reason, taken a lead line check job in the in the uh, seven six and which meant i couldn't fiddle my schedule i couldn't drop trips or, you know <laughs> call it six sometimes when i should have and uh, at the same time i had a full-time job working on a television show in in in, in, in uh, la that took about 10 days of uh, my life every month and of course i'd be working on this stuff on layovers and, and uh, every spare minute and i was at that time going through a divorce i was going through uh well, I had a, a, a hard line contract for a book that, 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 that year that, that uh, you know, and publishers don't give you any mercy on that. So I'm working day and night on this, on this book, Hollywood scripts. I was getting sued big time by a character in a previous book that came to nothing, but this is a, <laughs> was a female fighter pilot who thought I had libeled her. Oh, wow. I, I didn't, I told the truth, but, uh, all the, all this was going was was going on in my life until that magic day, age sixty. Ah, I'm out of here, and life got better. 
And that show was uh, Wings Over Pensacola? Yeah, Pensacola Wings of Gold. Okay. What was your what was your role? Were you a writer? I was a writer. Okay. And it was based on that season was based on on one of my books called Bogies and Bandits. So that got me first hired as a consultant. And then I became a writer. And then the next season I was supposed to be a writer producer and, and maybe even a director. And at that time CBS fired us all and and put took the show off the air. When did you start writing? Well, at the time I could read, I think. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I sold my first article to a magazine when I was age 16. And that was just within days of when I first soloed an airplane. And so from, from then on, these, these two careers have been in, in parallel. I've, I've done them both together. Oh, that's great. That's great. So that was the so the first day you or the first week you sold an airplane was the first time you got paid to to write for an article. That's right. Yeah. That's that's really cool. What what was the first book that you uh, that you wrote? Well, I I'd written some unsuccessful novels. Every every writer has to go through this. But when I was based in Hong Kong, I started working for the uh, South China Morning Post. It's the biggest English language newspaper in the Far East. And I did a series of articles about the, uh, the World War II fall of, of, of Hong Kong, the Japanese invasion. And at that time, this was in the mid-70s, a lot of the old veterans still lived there. And there's still a lot of artifacts from the battle, little pillboxes and, and, and stuff up in the hills. So this ran for about eight weeks, and I interviewed these guys. And then I actually got access to some, some Japanese veterans some officers who were willing to talk to me in Tokyo and I would juxtapose their points of view in this in these articles well it was very well received to the point where a British publisher uh, offered me a, a book contract on so that put me on the scorecard that's my first it's called season of storms okay and, and just long before people self-published anything so uh, that was a big uh, a big notch in my belt. From then on, I, I was able pretty much to sell everything I proposed. That's I, great. A little while later, I wrote a book called China Clipper. Which, you know, if you know about that, it's, it was all about the age of the great flying boats. Yeah. And that was bought by Naval Institute Press. Not a big publisher, but a, but a prestigious publisher. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you told me uh, some time back you were working on a historical project right now. I was, and I've got it on hold right now. Uh, okay. Now, we'll talk about that later, but uh, it's it's another military history, which uh, my last couple of books have been. But the, the the contract and the money to be earned from it versus the amount of work that goes into it, just as I balanced this out, I said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. But, uh, okay. Mainly because the publishing business is pretty much driven by lawyers now. And so every, particularly a nonfiction book, every factoid, every photograph, every quote, you have to have a release or some, some documentation to support. And that's a lot more work than just writing the book. And I, and I remember I've done enough of these 16 books to know that when you get this contract in your hand and a check 
advance. It wasn't a very big advance either. That kind of put me off. But after the euphoria wears off, you see this deadline, usually, usually 12 months. I'm an indentured servant for the next 12 months working on it. <laughs> so I, I just put it aside. I may or may not go back to it, but I, I've gone back to writing fiction, which is a lot more fun. Do you mind talking about your process when you, uh, when you write fiction? Well, yeah, it's a different process. And, and, and uh, you, I, I have to go into a kind of a meditative state before I, for, particularly if the plot is not clear in my head. I have to figure out what I'm going to do with these characters. But you, you sort of get into a, what's fun about it, you get into this sort of godlike state where you can invent people and, and put them out on a limb, saw off the limb, kill them, bring them back to life. Sometimes I've done that a lot. You can't do that with nonfiction. You gotta, you gotta be very careful. And yeah. in, in, in fiction, I say, you know, you can tell lies and get paid for it. That's, so it's fun. But the process always starts the same way in the morning. I have to get, get hyped up and I have to think about how this is going to unfold and, and if I don't keep the momentum going, then I have to, it's hard to start the process again. So what disciplines and structures do you use with your creative process? What structures? You know, routine, well, routine, you know. Well, like I said, I, I have to kind of get geared up in the morning. I review what I just written before. And if I'm smart, if I'm on my game, I'll have stopped what I was doing the day before, or a couple days before at some point where I know what's going to happen next. Because otherwise, if I have to create a whole new scene, and you can, that's a lot more work. But if I stop somewhere where the where the action is in, is is in mid flow, then it's a lot easier to pick up. And when I get stuck, sometimes I'm, I'll just walk away from the keyboard. Now, see, I'm, I'm old enough as a writer where I started writing on manual typewriters. Yeah, so I've I've, I've done it every which way, and there's a different mental process using a. Uh, a computer than there is, for example, a typewriter. You don't peck out a bunch of words on a typewriter and then and, and delete. You, you think about what you're going to write first. Whereas on a computer, you can throw a whole bunch of junk on a page and delete it and move it around and play with it. And that kind of makes you lazy. Okay. But when I get stuck sometimes, I, I take a yellow legal pad and I just go outside. I go in the backyard or something in the patio and I'll just doodle on that, just a free flow. Uh, just let ideas come out without any particular form and sometimes that solves a blockage jerry seinfeld uh i heard an interview with him talking about his creative process and he he demands an hour with himself uh in the morning with a with a pad and a piece of paper in front of him and and a cup of coffee and he, you know he talks about how you know, he doesn't have to write during that hour, but the only thing that he's allowed to do is write, you know, so yeah, he can sit yeah. there, but, and, and just that, you know, and, and he talks about it being just an hour because asking significantly more of himself is just some other aspect of his personality would just reject it. You know, it's, it's just an hour. What, what do you find your, or do you find that your process is, uh 
more oscillating or do you do you kind of have a sweet spot where you know how much time you need and how much time you're going to be able to be creative for every morning uh, 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 it, it varies from day to day but the, the, the mechanical process that works best for me is i and i watch it at nine o'clock i'm gonna sit down, i'm gonna write for one hour i mean i've got a busy life so i promise myself i'll do nothing else for one hour well always if i get into the flow that'll go for two three or more more hours okay but I, I make myself stay there for one hour. Now, the other downside of writing on a computer is there's a lot of other stuff going on in the computer. Yeah. And it's very hard not to look at email, not to watch the stock market. And, to, and uh, so sometimes I'll just take a, my laptop with everything else turned off okay. and, and except, except Word and go someplace else. But uh, basically, one has to shut off everything except what you're doing at the, at the moment it's harder to do with a computer and so excuse me there's a different writing process what jerry seinfeld is doing in the pad is involving a different part of his brain than he would involve if he were in front of a keyboard yeah you, you write differently yeah and so you generally like to be in front of the keyboard but if you but if you hit block then you'll you'll revert yeah. to the pad yeah Okay. And the keyboard's good because I have, you know, all these shortcuts on my on my word processor, and I, I know how to throw stuff on the screen and move it around, all that. But uh, if the writing isn't going well, then I change venues. And now you still fly regularly, right? You've got your uh, your your CM Marchetti still. No, I have a RV seven. Okay. And I have these three guys who I fly with, we call ourselves the Mavericks. We used to call ourselves the Marchetti Mavericks. And then one by one, we sold our Marchettis. Okay. But uh, we still do the same thing. We bought, we just did Saturday morning. We go out and do some formation aerobatics. Okay. And Where do you do your aerobatics? 10 miles south of here, a place called Lake Ashby. Okay. And uh, we, our only audience is mainly alligators, I guess. Do you guys ever perform at shows or anything like that? Are you done with that? Last air show we did was, I don't know, maybe five years ago. I'm sorry. There was just one other scene that I wanted to ask you about. Was this a scene pulled from your experience or was it pulled from somebody else's experience? Uh, I believe it was a captain. Bob Faff was sitting in the front seat of a 747 with his first officer and, uh, and Charles Lindbergh wanted to come up. And Bob Faff, the first time that he ever slicked his hair when he was eight yeah. years old was because he wanted to go see Lindbergh because Lindbergh was his hero. Was that you in that scene? And if not, do you remember that? No, it wasn't me in the scene because I never personally met Lindbergh. Okay. But Bob Pfaff told me that story. So I answered, I get, I probably inserted Rob Martin's side in that scene. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a true story. And, and Lindbergh did that a lot. Uh, I was one of the few who probably never who never met him. Okay. Cockpit, but he he would travel incognito all over the Pan Am system, and yeah. he used to send his card up to a cockpit and come up and just talk airplanes with the crew members, and uh, he was uh, very highly regarded by obviously by all. Of them. You felt like it, the way you painted the scene, it was just one of the places where he could kind of seem just normal and have yeah. a normal conversation and not be treated like, yeah. you know. And everybody was usually surprised at how knowledgeable he was about 
747s and the, and the engines of the airplanes and the systems and all that. Yeah. He was technically uh, very well informed. I remember, again, back to that thing, why did Pan Am fail? And I, I could cite maybe half a dozen events, any one of which Pan Am might have recovered from. But the, the, the first one itself was the uh, 747 arrival of the order. It was the biggest aviation order in history. It's about half yeah. a billion dollars for, for these 747s. Having done that one trip, there it is, and he retired. And it's like the air, as soon as the old man went away, the airline started fading too. Because when the 747s arrived, it, it was simultaneous with this world recession and a huge oil jump and the, and the, the sudden decline in passenger traffic. Plus, it had all these engine problems. And Pan Am was the only operator of the airport. So Pan Am had to, had to do all this, this uh, technical solving of, of, of these problems that the other airlines came along later, like TWA, didn't have to do. So, so that was a big blow. Pan Am lost a huge, huge amount of money that they never recovered from. And then through the 70s, it began to recover, started making a whole lot of money. And then the next thing was General Sewell's paying so much money for national airlines. Yeah. And that was, was a huge hemorrhage of money. But at the same time, another comes another recession, another, uh, another falling off of airline traffic. And Pan Am just starts, at the time, they're losing more money than any, any airline had ever lost, month after month after month. Got to be a joke. You know, we can't be losing this much money. It, it's, somebody's just, just uh, printing these stories. And then they started selling pieces off. This is Eddie Acker came along and his solution, I mean, everybody's solution as they hemorrhage money was to sell something. And Sewell, for example, sold the uh, Crown Jewel, the uh, Intercontinental Hotels, and then the Pan Am building itself. And then Eddie Acker comes along and sells the Pacific Route System, which was the most profitable part of the airline. Yeah. And somebody made the joke that Pan Am's like a coyote caught in a trap. It's chewed off three of its legs and it's still in the trap. <laughs> got to work. And of course, came Lockerbie, and there's no recovering from that. So, the, the Pacific routes to United were they the most profitable or were they the most revenue generating? You know, like the, were, were, the, were the costs high there or did, did they really get rid of the, uh, the biggest? financial engine for the airline no I, I i can't speak to that economics wise if if i was told it was the most profitable uh, branch of the system okay the, the pacific and uh, why that would be i'm not sure but it uh, without that pan am was no longer around the world airline and yeah that that changed the entire complexion of it, it accurate at the same time acquired the, with the money from the, the United sale, acquired the Airbus fleet and he re-equipped Berlin with these beat up old 737s from his former airline, Air Florida. Nothing good happened after that. And all along, all of the CEOs still treated the airline like it was their own personal you know, private jets and, and uh, yeah. you talk about, was it, was it Acker's wife or was it Sewell's wife who, uh, who yeah. demanded the champagne on the. Uh... That, that was Acker's wife. She, she was young and foxy. 
but you know that that's interesting because i've only seen a couple of cultures you know buck the trend with that i mean just the other day i heard a story of an airline ceo you know kicking guests out of first class so that they could uh because he decided to show up 20 minutes before a full flight to uh to go somewhere and it's unique in the industry where you have airline uh, CEOs who are riding in coach yeah. because or riding up in flight decks with with the pilots you know there's a lot of good stories about people like Herb Kelleher doing that um was there a sense uh, during all of that, that, that there was per personal gain being made by the CEOs for them selling off the, the parts of Pan Am? Certainly that was rumored because all this was going on at the same time. They were demanding pay cuts and givebacks from the employees. And, uh, and then people would say, I saw, I heard somebody say that they saw, you know, heard that a lot after carrying a briefcase full of money, you know, stories like that. I doubt that there is ever any truth to it, but yeah. given the conditions that Pan Am was going through and the arrogance of some of these guys, yeah, it was inevitable that people would tell stories like that. What do you think if, if, if you were able to talk to young pilots getting into the career today, what lessons would you want them to learn? What, what perspectives would you try to share with them? Well, it's it's a different game than it was when I was in, but I I've, I've told all these people, including now there, there's something new going on now where people are retiring from the military, pretty high rank, you know, commanders and captains and so forth in in the Navy. I know they're starting out in the bottom of airlines, but for young guys particularly, I'd say treat this like like a job. You take that seniority number and now your, your, your career is out of your control. That guy one number ahead of you is always going to be ahead of you. And however the company is managed will depend on what kind of career you're going to have. So do something else. Use this as your, as your, as your main job, your life support, and learn how to do something else. Take, you know, learn another profession. Start a business. Do something else on the side. You'd be glad you did, like you're doing. And that was all. That was always uh, the advice given by my dad too. He was very emphatic yeah, about it. It's a good example. There are a couple questions that I like to ask of all of the pilots that I interviewed. Um, so, what do you think makes a good pilot? Makes a good pilot. And 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 I, and I will also ask for you to, you know, what yes, makes a good, it. what makes a good pilot? What makes a good captain? first officer and just crew member in general those are very broad questions but and that's if, if you don't want to be put on the spot you don't have to be yeah, but i just i, I just I, like ask there's a kind of secret chemistry in what makes a, a good pilot because i and it's not so much education or it's not so much i, I remember in the navy in the navy still you know they they, they everybody's a college graduate now and, it's, and, and, and a lot of them have technical degrees or engineers and it doesn't seem to have much to do with how they fly an airplane like F-18. And in, in some cases, this is my book, Boogies and Bandits. In some cases, some uh, liberal arts major who, who flunked algebra is a superb fighter pilot. He's got this, this, this chemistry, this, this, this set of this, this awareness that makes him so good. And I, I know some really highly educated people. I, I knew a woman with a, she was in a book. 
had a master's degree in nuclear engineering or something like that. And she got kicked out of F-18 training because she, she couldn't fly. She couldn't fly fighters in, in a tactical situation. She just had no, couldn't think that way. So that's that secret chemistry. I think there has to be a little spirit of adventure, adventurousness. They, they have to be a little bit of a risk taker, but a very calculated risk taker to be a good pilot. And then beyond that, there, there's something that's probably built in some kind of sense of coordination and uh, a skill set that, I mean, I, I know a lot of guys who were terrible athletes who couldn't hit a tennis ball with a racket, but they could land an airplane superbly. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where that came from. As, as far as being a good captain, I, I knew a lot of co-pilots who, who for 16 years were pretty good first officers. And then they got in the left seat and they were terrible captains because somehow they just lost the ability to, to make decisions and to manage. And a good yeah. captain is a manager. He's a team leader for all the screening that airlines and, and the military does to evaluate people's skills. The one thing they're not very good at evaluating is how good this person is going to manage this team. It comes out finally too late. Yeah. And some people, as you know, are natural, natural leaders and good managers. And some are, are technically great airplane flyers and terrible managers. Yeah. You know, it's interesting if I think of every aviation interview I've been in, not once have did they ever run me through an exercise where they were asking me to lead something or to, to exemplify leading. It's always firing questions off and, and, you know, seeing if you got the right answer, which is yeah. likely something that you've been coached on by someone you paid a couple hundred bucks to who, you yeah. know, what do you feel like it means to be a professional pilot or, or to be, or, or what do you, what do you think it means to exemplify professionalism? Like what, as a pilot. Exemplify professionalism. Well, first of all, when you say pilot, uh, I presume you're talking about airline pilot because what, constitutes professionalism in the airline. It's not, not necessarily the same thing as a crop duster, for example, or yeah. even a, a, a military fighter pilot. Uh, obviously, professionalism in the airline, it has to do with, with decision-making and very conservative decision-making and a certain amount of, of, of ability to look ahead, to, to, to think ahead of the airplane and think ahead of the situation. This is uh, what am I going to do if, or this, that, I get A, I got B, and, and to evaluate the possibilities. Other kinds of flying is not quite that. It doesn't fall in that framework. It's a, yeah. Flying a military fighter or offer carrier or something like that, a lot of that has, has to do with your self-control. you got to you're scared to death half the time, you know. Yeah. How much? How, how calm you can remain in, in adverse situations. Have you seen Top Gun Maverick? Of course, of course. What'd you think of it? Uh, great entertainment. I mean, I, I, I remember the first one came out '86, and I, I was when I was doing this book with these F-18, this F-18 training class. I'd asked if they'd seen. 
Top Gun. And they, ah, what I watch that crap. Yeah, that made me want to puke. And each one of them had seen it about 13 times. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and this one is even more over the top, I think. And that's, it's just good entertainment. It's yeah. a, some interesting flying, but some just over the top stuff. I mean, starting off with going Mach 10, I think. I, I, I can see where this is going to go. Yeah. And then steal the F-14. Uh, okay. Well, you know, that's a, a, it, it's a movie, right? So we know that it's, it's coming out of Hollywood, but, but it, it, it did do a really good job of, you know, once you granted them that, you know, that license, uh it it, it was really entertaining uh so were you still involved in military at all so you were involved writing were you still involved were you doing any like reserve flying back then or anything uh when when the first top gun came out no i I was out of the reserves and regrettably i i left the navy reserve in about 70 or something like that when i went to berlin because i couldn't i couldn't keep it up it never back i sort of regret that got a friend who was an air force pilot and he said that when top gun came out if you were a fighter pilot it, it suddenly became very good for your uh sex life yeah <laughs> <laughs> but back to the to the professionalism thing it was interesting and i was talking with a friend of mine and i was saying how i appreciated the professionalism but coupled with the laid-backness of the current you know group of pilots that i'm flying with right now and and he was like well, I don't really care about professionalism, but then I was like, well, what I mean is just, I appreciate people not doing stupid things and making up their own stuff, you know, uh, and just doing the SOP, you know, unless there's a reason to not be doing the SOP, you know, and not inventing your own stuff. And then what was funny is the same guy who just a minute or two later said that he didn't care for professionalism. He, but then he he then chimes in. He's like, I agree. I like to be an SOP robot and prefer my coworkers to be the same. So even though he's here yeah. saying that that he doesn't identify as professional, he's embracing that that attitude. And the big recipe, the antidote to all of the 707s crashing in Pan Am at Pan Am was SOPs. That yep. there was a a you know, a new cultural commitment that we were going to follow these and, and hold each other accountable. What's your perspective on the role of SOPs and whether or not you deviate from them with regards to professionalism? Well, the very basic reason for SOPs is, is to cure the problem we had at Pan Am, which is, is individualistic, everybody operating the airplane their own way with the good standard operating procedures and crew management. People, total strangers can come from all over and, and check in for a flight, sit in a cockpit, and no surprises. They all know they're all doing, as boring as it might be, they're all doing everything the same way that, that, that uh, the way the, way the standard procedure calls for. You know, and that's invaluable. That, that's, that's, that changed the safety record of, of the airline industry. So when you deviate from professionalism, you're going to cause some eyebrows to raise. Uh, you deviate procedurally very much i'd say you don't belong here yeah you're going to deviate from a from something deviate in a in a more professional way or deviate in a, in a, in a safer way back to your class of new hires you talked about that there was a 
a couple of different types of, uh, of pilots that showed up there. You talk about airplane heads and accidentals. Can you expand more upon? Yeah, that was more true back in the 60s and the 70s. Back then, in the middle of the Cold War, every young male expected was, was eligible to get drafted. And uh, for a lot of people, uh, they'd go through college and then faced with the prospect of going in the military, they'd say, well, you can be a, a grunt in a foxhole or you can, or a sailor swabbing decks, or you can go to flight training. And some of these guys never thought about flight training or military. You no, know, that sounds like a lot more, a lot more glamorous than, than the alternative. So they'd go through and they found out, well, oh, it's something I'm pretty good at. And so they served their time in the military flying airplanes and they got out and they got a degree in forestry or something, they, you know, what kind of job they're going to get. But here are the airlines hiring like mad. So, oh, okay, pays pretty good. So off they go, and they're now airline pilot now. Never with ever having thought of, of, of flying, flying for a living as a profession. So those I call the accidentals. They're there just because of this, this little quirk in history. And yeah. the other half, the airplane heads are guys like me who grew up with airplanes. They uh, took lessons at, at the local airport, and, and, and as soon as they... All they want to do is, is if they want the military, go fly fighters and shoot people. And uh, they were the airplane heads. So pretty much an even division back in those days. There was one guy who was civilian. Civilians were about what, 10, 5 to 10% of uh, your pilots back then? Yeah, back then. And that gradually changed. But uh, particularly after the Vietnam era, because... Uh, the military just wasn't cranking out as many pilots. And so do you think that, um, would a fighter pilot think that they were better than a, uh, than a, uh, oh, of course, uh, of course. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, class structure in, in among pilots anyway, but fighter pilots always thought they were, you know, they were the pinnacle and they looked down on, on, other military pilots who flew multi-engine, they were the trash haulers. Yeah. You know, never mind, they were all flying trash now. But uh, yeah, fighter pilots were the most egocentric and, and snobbish and, and uh, overrated probably of all. But, but you mentioned there was, was there one time period um, where, um, oh man, why, why is the name of the, uh, of the, the, the four-star general failing me, the, uh, the guy who did all the firebombing raids over Tokyo, um, who then did oh, the sack. Uh, LeMay. LeMay. Yeah, so you, so you got LeMay's Strategic Air Command, uh, where they were uh, lots of times, uh, were, were they demanding that or picking off that if you if you were in the top of your class, you, you then had to go to sack sometimes? The Air, Air Force. Force? Yeah, yeah, the Air Force did that. At other times in the military, your performance in your class would typically give you your choice of assignment, right? Yeah. But not so in those times. So did that do anything? Again, you're talking about the Air Force, and the Navy wasn't so much that way. Okay. You got what you, what if you're top of your class, you got pretty much what you wanted. Okay. Um, I was just wondering if maybe that, uh, you know, gave any of the SAC guys a. a, a their own special sense of uh, self-importance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I knew a lot of guys who went through fighter training, Air Force fighter training, yeah. who got 
that's exactly what happened. You're not flying an F-86, you're going to fly a B-47 or a B-52. It's like, oh, man. Or a tanker, it's even worse. Bob, I really appreciate you joining me and telling me your story of Pan Am. Thanks very much for writing the book. I'm excited to, to read your next book, whatever that might be. I hope we could do this sometime again in the future. Okay, looking forward to it, Scott. Thank you for having me. You talk about the next book. After Sky Gods, there were about 14 more books. But the last one, which was a, a briefly a bestseller, was Angels in the Sky, which I commend to you. It's nonfiction. I will throw that on my reading list. It is, um, it is about how a group of ragtag airmen uh, saved the newfound state of Israel. That's and right. It's set in, uh, what, the late 40s? Yeah, 1948. I was just at my eye doctor the other day, and uh, he told me that he was, you know, he was like, oh, you're a pilot. I just read this book called Angels in the Sky, you know? I love it. Yeah, love it. You know, so, uh, and I, it was pretty cool that i told him well i was about to interview the author myself so that was, that was pretty exciting yeah i look forward to reading that thanks a lot bob appreciate you joining me thank you scott bye-bye if you've stuck around until now thank you very much for listening you can really help me out by sharing this with anyone sharing it with a friend sharing it on social media i'd really appreciate that and that's how you can best help me out thank you very much have a great day